The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips, and on this show, we'll be turning up the psychological perspective on many life issues. To do this, I want to include you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and call in with questions, comments to today's show at 1-866-472-5788. You know, we've been increasingly aware of the reality of campus sexual violence. In an earlier show, we considered the importance of male voices in the prevention of campus violence. But today we're going to examine another aspect of this problem. Here's the reality. A report by the National Institute of Justice on sexual victimization of college women estimates that we have, in terms of completed or attempted rape or victimization, between 20 and 25% of women deal with it during their four years at college. Now, 9 in 10 victims of rape and sexual assault know their offender. Almost 12.8% of completed rapes and 35% of attempted rapes and 22% of threatened rapes happen during a date. How does this happen? How does this happen when young people know each other and they're on a date? This show is going to look closer at an aspect of campus sexual violence we often overlook, giving and and getting consent. When is a yes a yes? When is a no a no? Our guests are two experts. Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boaz will be discussing their important action research on the language of sexual consent among college students. Dr. Jason Laker is a professor in the Department of Counselor Education and the Doctor of Education Program in Educational Leadership. Both he and Dr. Boaz are affiliated research faculty with the Center for Research and Education on Gender and Sexuality. Dr. Boaz, let me start out with you. Actually, just as an overview for our listeners, how will consent stories make a difference in reducing sexual violence on campus? Um, yes, thank you. So we believe that Consent Stories, our, our research project, which we will get into in just a moment, um, 
will help young people and, you know, not only young people, but really everybody understand better the true um, nature of what sex and sexuality is for people who are living it, and that is everybody. Um, so when I say that, I mean that it's, it, we deal with the real lived experiences of college students um, when we interview them and um, when we learn about what it is that they are confronting in their, um, in their romantic relationships, in their sexual relationships, and in their friendship relationships as well. Um, and so we believe that using that information toward a much deeper and more robust understanding of um, what consent is in the real life um, will help us develop better strategies for um, for approaching the issues on college campuses um, in K twelve education and beyond. Right, so it's not we're not really really focused on the college campus, although that is where our research is taking place, and that's where we do most of our work now. Um, but we think that we're onto something for the greater good as well. Okay, now I remember. When um, I first spoke to both of you, I think there was some mention, Erica, that you started out studying the hookup generation Mm -hmm. and somehow ended up in the consent stories because you said people were just saying things like, well, it just happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when you said, well, it just happened, did you mean sexual violence or some sort of incident or just sexual connection between co-eds? We, when, when our respondents talked about, our participants in this study talked about, um, used the term, it just happened, that was not necessarily indicative of sexual violence or any kind of assault. It was really indicative of um, the, the norms around talking about sex. So we, we often say, you know, and then this led to that, and then it just happened, it being sex. Right mm-hmm. or it being the hookup, um, it being anything that is um, related to physical activity between two or more people. Um, so we asked them to please slow that down so that we could really understand the details, the nuances of how consent was or was not negotiated in the interaction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I'm just picturing having had college kids. I mean... Did this group just stare at both of you? I know you were both interviewing or working with them at one student at a time. Um, mm-hmm. Did they stare at you blankly or did they <laughs> jump in and start talking? I'm just trying to picture this. Well, um, we found that our participants were very willing to share with us. And, of course, they, we, were very, we were transparent about what it was we were studying, and we let them know. And so already they, um, they were primed to, to talk about their sexual experiences. However, it, the willingness or the openness of um, each individual varied, of course. Okay. Um, so, but we generally didn't get blank stares. Generally, okay. people were very, um, very willing to, to talk about our questions. Okay. Now, just so our listeners know, what would you say was your mean age? And, and were they a mixed gender? And were they all heterosexual students? Just so we have a sense of our, our sample here. 
Jason, well, would you can, like to take that? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, Suzanne, we uh, recruited for that for that pilot study. The the first study we did, we recruited a collection, a cohort of first year students, and that means and well, it doesn't always mean this. So let me say, we for us, we were looking for first year students who were at least eighteen. Obviously, you know that if they weren't yet 18, we would have to then engage parents and so forth for permission, and we didn't want to do that. So uh, they were 18. They were first time moved out of the house, first time in college, living on campus, and those criteria were intended to, you know, were, were part of the method to, because that is obviously the age of 18, the move from the home to the college, living on campus when you're going to be in a thicker part of the social culture. These were all part of our criteria in order uh, to get the most, um, the richest accounts of what's happening uh, um, with qualitative research because, you know, there's a, there's a fundamental difference uh, between quantitative and qualitative in terms of what how you know that you've got legitimate information and so forth. So there are very rigorous methods with qualitative and quantitative, and so we were trying to really honor that and, and make sure that we were very thoughtful about it. So these were first-year students who were 18, and um, you asked earlier you know, to Erica about um, the question of whether they would give blank stares or what have you, but you know, as she said, um, they self-selected, meaning that they volunteered for the study. We had, okay. were out there recruiting. And... Um, if I may, you know, when I was in college, I was a resident assistant, you know, one of those uh, older students, right. you know, who's a mentor mm-hmm. on the floor. And anytime, uh, and this is a very common experience, and I was also a peer health educator. So um, at that time, anytime I would do a, a, pro- a program on the floor that had anything to do with sex, those were the most well-attended programs. And that, that <laughs> yes. continues to be true right. mm-hmm. because it's a subject that, that people are very interested in, and they're interested mm-hmm. in it for very healthy ways, and also because there's such strange politics and stigma and so forth, which I know mm-hmm. we'll get into around the subject. It's also, um, there's a certain taboo to it and so forth. So this, this stew of, of agendas and issues, uh, you know, that people contend with around our sexuality um, contribute to a real longing, I think, to, to be able to explore that part of oneself and understand ourselves not just about that subject. So these. So the point is that that it wasn't difficult to find people willing. So the issue was finding people who would represent the 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 issues we were seeking, and also to be very respectful and ethical about making sure that there wouldn't be trauma. So we, for example, asked that people who had been abused in any way not volunteer, uh, right. as an mm-hmm. example, so that the interviews didn't activate that. Mm. Now. You were, um, first of all, I love in a way that they were freshmen because there's, that's such a vulnerable group for this topic of sexual violence on campus. But now they had both of you inviting them to share their experiences, as you say, unpack the narratives. Did you think that the fact that you were male and female helped this? I mean, you were you could have been thought of as, you know, uh, parents, but nicely parents that are not my real parents, and um, and or um, if I'm more comfortable with men, you're in the room. If I'm more comfortable with women, Eric is in the room. Did any of the students comment as they told you or shared their experiences about the fact that you were both there and that the gender mattered at all? 
I don't, I don't recall don't, that being a consideration. What about you, Erica? I don't know. I don't recall them ever um, ever stating that that was something that brought them in or kept them there or made them speak any differently. Um, but that doesn't mean that it didn't. It wasn't happening. Okay. So yeah, now I, mean, I have a. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, um, for me, um, they thought it would be important that more that uh, male and female were represented. Obviously, there's people who are gender fluid or gender nonconforming and so forth. But no, it's also true that no one person represents all of the people of whatever category. So yes. just in terms of the method, it seemed appropriate because we have, for, you know, for whatever else could be said, we have different lived experiences. I grew up male, Erica grew up female, and it seemed just sensible that at least those two perspectives would be part of uh, uh, the, the the process and that how we make meaning of what the students are telling us would be shaped in part by our respective identities. So it was really uh, just part and parcel of the the method of trying to be you know do all the housekeeping to ensure the best possible uh, ability to get clear and and useful information. Okay, now I'm sure our listeners are wondering what would be an example of the kind of narratives. They unpacked, as you say. What was the type of consent story you might hear? Well, um, so, you know, as Erica alluded to earlier, um, the, the phrase, it just happened, I think it could easily have been uttered 100 times in the first <laughs> round of interviews. You know, we had 15 students in the first cohort. Right. And um, again, I, you know, I want to remind listeners that there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of sort of myths about research that, you know, you need to have 1,000 people or 2,000 or whatever. The, the key is in the methods. There's, there's studies that have 10,000 people and it's flawed and there's studies that have one person in it, and it's excellent. So um, this, this session, of, I mean, this show today is not about research methods, but I just wanted that as a preface. Um, so as Erica alluded to earlier, um, this it just happened thing is really just keeping with the social conventions that, that we live in, that it's either considered unseemly to give details of an account, you know, of what happened in private, or um, it's that, and this I think became key, that we often just go through our life experiences in a mindless way. And I mean, you're a therapist. I'm sure you can appreciate that one of the things that can really be hard for clients or anyone uh, in terms of them enjoying their life or suffering or what have you has uh, a lot to do as well with how present they are in their life and how much agency they're exercising and the decisions they're making or how much agency they can exercise depending on their constraints. So uh, the, so in other words, it just happened is, is a fairly typical, phrase. And of course, because this is a research project, we understand that, but we wanted to get clearer. And so we explained that to the participants and they, and they understood that, of course. So yep. we helped them to rewind. And then to your question, so here's a couple of quick well, examples. Okay, of I'm going to just ask you a question because I don't want us to run out of time before you launch into that. So just so I know and our listeners know, you mentioned in terms of me as a therapist. So very often people don't tell the whole story, even if it's in somewhat fragmented pieces, in one sitting, in one session. Mm-hmm. Just remind me, so in this study, 15 students meet with both of you, and then they come back and continue their narrative, Erica and Jason? Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so, it, you know, it's not, 
it's not so continuous in the sense that we met with them three times over the course of their first year, and um, they had gone through many experiences in their, you know, within those couple of months between our, our meeting times. Um, but we did follow up with them on different experiences that they had been going through, um, you know, aspects that they shared of their lives, and we asked them to follow up. And what we found was that the longer they stayed with us, um, the more the more in depth their stories became, the more thoughtful they be- reflective they became about what ha- what they had been experiencing. Um, and so, in that in that sense, it there was a continuity, um, but it wasn't you know it wasn't like a uh, a direct flow of information. But what's so interesting, and maybe that's a piece of why you call this action research. Action research means something's happening for the subject while they're involved in the experiment. Tell, correct the, me. Well, um, it, it was. It's not an. You know, in this this type of research, it's not an experiment. Of course, we're just trying to understand their life experience from their perspective. So, in so action research is a type of research where you're doing something and simultaneously studying, and so. We didn't initially think of what we were doing as action research. It was it was ethnographic research, which, as I said, is about understanding lived experience from the perspective of the person living it. But when it turns out, you know, when they start to talk about their experience in the research or look forward to uh, the interview or mm. tell us how the, the you know the, what they thought after the interview and how that shaped things, it became evident that they were affected, you know, and and positively so by the the experience. And so that's when we, you know, really started to think, oh, you know, and it seems more obvious, you know, in retrospect, but it seemed no one listens to anyone anymore, you know. So (laughs) to have a young person, anyone really, but in this case, a young person come in, two adults who are not their parents and are not in the peer culture, uh, genuinely interested in listening to them for an hour, it is a transformational experience and a very positive one. Um, So that's more how it became action research. Okay. Uh, This is wonderful. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boas about consent stories and college sexual violence. And we're going to come right back and actually hear some of these stories, and we're going to really understand why this actual study gave these students what we want students to get. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? 
It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're talking with doctors Jason Laker and Erica Boaz. We're talking about college sexual violence, from, but from a different perspective. We're really looking at consent stories, and they're the stories that both Jason and Erica were able to invite students to share with them. And when you think about it, what we were saying just before we took the break is they started out sort of by saying, they said over and over students would say it just happened, but the more they met with our researchers here, the more they started finding words. And when you think about it, if every time something happened in your life, something important, and for kids certainly intimacy and sexual connection is important, you said it just happened, you'd never quite go forward with lessons learned or really looking closer at what you did and what mattered and why it happened. And that's really one of the gifts they gave students in this qualitative research they did. So let me ask each of you to share. Tell us what would be an example of the kind of consent story you actually heard, Erica. Okay, well, um, so just to start, I will say that not all the stories we heard would could be necessarily categorized as consent stories. So some okay. of them are um, stories where that whether it was consensual or not is ambiguous um, to the listen. It will be ambiguous to the listener, and it's certainly ambiguous to um, our participant as well. Um, so. I wanted to preface this story with that statement um, to begin. Um, and I have, you know, we have reasons for sharing our particular stories, but I think um, for the purpose of this, this show, we want to show, we want to be able to demonstrate that mo- many of the situations that young people are in are very ambiguous um, for different reasons um, around consent. And what they do is they grapple with that. 
right? They are trying to come to their own understanding of what consent means for them and what it means for them to be sexually agentic. Um, so one of our examples is um, with somebody that we call Margot, who um, when we met her in our first in her first year, so this was October of her first year, so she had just started school. Um, she, we presented our, our, our participants with a, an article that was really about, you know, this idea of gray rape, right? Date rape, that is gray, that's ambiguous, where the lines are blurry, um, usually there's alcohol involved. Um, and so we had them read an article that was responding to this, um, and she read it, and she said, well, this has happened to me, um, where, and she proceeded to tell us about a time when she had um, gone to a party, gotten drunk, um, begun hooking up with somebody, and midway through, she blacked out and woke up, and she was having sex, or the person was having sex with her. Um, and so in that moment she, that she, um, she regained sort of consciousness, um, she made a decision that she was going to keep on having sex. And her statement was, um, what she said to us was, well, I was already doing it and I thought, well, it's okay. I'm, I'm just going to continue and I'm going to um, just, you know, let it, let it finish. Um, and she ended up spending the night there and she woke up and when she woke up, she was with, the guy was there, and they ended up hanging out in the morning. And so when she was um, relating this to us, she, in, at no point did she ever um, label this as sexual assault, sexual violence, rape, um, although it was clear that she was uncertain as to what it could be called because it wasn't clear to her also that it was consensual, right? Mm-hmm. That she never said it was consensual, um, she had, you know, explained that things happen, and then she sort of generalized it to say these things happen to people, right? And we have to take responsibility for the things that happen. Um, but over the course, so to your question about how young people can learn from talking about their experiences, right? So in um, neither as, as interviewers, neither Jason nor I are in the position to tell this young woman, right, that, that she was a victim or that she experienced rape. Um, so we are clear on our stance with, with that particular, um, with this particular instance, right? <clears throat> because, you know, Well, she, let me ask you this. Erica, did this young uh-huh. person or did anyone else who had this kind of story where they're kind of, well, I'm not so sure, but in the end, mm-hmm. okay, I'll, I'll go with it. Did they at any time say, what do you guys think? Do you think... Um, no, no, I, not that I recall. Um, oh, okay. but, I, but I want to finish this up just sure, sure. Yes. quickly. So she came back to us two more times, and each time she expressed that she had been working toward doing things differently. So mm-hmm. she was very much, um, very much involved in the party culture at the university her first year, um, but she kept expressing to us that she needed to change things, that she wanted to change things, that, you know, this wasn't how she wanted to do things. And so I think that our interview gave her an opportunity to, um, to at least express, right, to articulate this thing that had happened to her in a way that's ambiguous on her terms and then return to it on her terms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, no, I don't 
think, and Jason, maybe you recall better than I, but at no point did anybody turn to us and say, well, what did you think? Instead, mm-hmm. it was them going through their own process of saying, well, what do I think? And mm-hmm. it being confusing and complex for them a lot of the time. Well, it, well, yeah, it fits with, as a therapist, when I've become aware over many, many years that when people are telling me, they're often telling themselves for the first time, mm-hmm. and that as she told her own story in front of a non-judgmental audience in a mm-hmm. safe setting, she maybe had the opportunity, without anybody's judgment jumping in, to reflect and come of her own accord to a place of thinking, this is not a situation I want again or a behavior on my part I want to mm-hmm. repeat. So it's very, very interesting how it's almost therapeutic, mm-hmm. the, the arrangement. Yeah, well, this, this is really, really that's valuable. That's exactly right. Mm. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly right. And that, that is part of why we think of retrospectively of this being action research. That, yeah. that wasn't our plan to intervene in any particular way. But to your point... Oh. When you give people a safe and respectful space uh, without judgment to think out loud in the form of storytelling, they are hearing that in their voice, and yeah, they, um, they're affected by that. And, that, and since the, the biggest goal you know, associated with our project is to, is to build capacity in people for, for agency. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I think if you can achieve that in something as fraught and complex as sexuality with, with all of the taboos and with all, you know, body shame, you know, think of all the politics and the, the, the mess of that sometimes. If mm-hmm. you can achieve that kind of agency with that, it's, I believe that you can achieve that, you know, that, that that sort of fills in other parts of your life as well. There's a certain mm-hmm. power and boldness to that. Um, and, and we did hear several uh, complex stories like the one Erica just uh, shared, and um, and to see the student, you know, progressively over time um, build and sort of reflect, and then and then make changes and build and so forth. It's a beautiful thing, but it's also very important because it those stories and our ability to share them with people, such as on your show, hopefully. Um, affirms people because, as I said earlier, people don't really listen to each other, and it's not because we're mean. It has to do with sort of social conventions. For example, the so-called correct answer to what's up is not much, and how, how you doing? Fine. Right. You know, it, and so if someone says, how you doing, and you say, oh, I'm so glad you asked this crazy thing happened to me, da, 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 the look on that other person's face will shut you down in a minute. So, right. So um, it's so important. And then on the other side, some of the stories that are, that are simpler, because the, the question of consent and sexual violence on college campuses has been very much in the news the last several years. And mm-hmm. laws have been you know, changed or implemented. The federal government is paying more attention. And one of our concerns is the vast majority of attention to these issues is from the legal and policy perspective. But it's always been illegal to, you know, or at least for the you know, living memory, it's been illegal to commit uh, sexual assault. And I believe that um, this is a human problem, not a legal one. And so we carve out this space to look at the human aspect of the lived experience, because if you look at laws and you look at student codes of conduct that are printed, you know, in university and college campuses, they'll say, you know, that they stipulate consent. And that this assumes one's going to say, do you want to do this? And the other's going to say yes or no, or you can do this, but not that. And that's very convenient for the lawyers. 
and for the administrators. And I've been an administrator. You know, I've told you before when we were preparing mm. for the show, I've been a dean of students. I've been a vice president for student affairs. I've worked with college students my whole career and in, in, in very intimate issues. Um, and the policies and the laws are helpful tools, but they sometimes become central to what, how we're paying attention. So um, we think that collecting stories, since people don't talk about these things, it gives a lot more possibility to people to provide examples and vocabulary. So there's the story that Erica shared. And then here's, here's a couple that are just really quick. Um, okay. One was... Um, this young woman was explaining that, you know, she had a boyfriend and, and that when he wanted to have sex, he kind of nuzzled under her cheek. And if, it, and, and, and if it's yes, she turns to him. And if it's no, she, physic, you know, she pushes him away with her hand. And there's something kind of funny about that. But regardless, that is a clear ask and answer. Um, mm-hmm. Another case, a young guy was talking about he was with his girlfriend. They're in bed. Um, he was on top of her. They're making out. So they're both lying down. And um, this is not a signature move or anything, but he recalled um, again, we had specific ways to help them rewind, but in any case, he recalled that he gently tugged on her sweatpants uh, three times, and she removed her pants, and then they had sex. So in both of those examples, they're very brief. They're also very clear. They are definite asks, and they are definite answers. And, it's, and the thing is that there's countless ways that people do that, and many of the rituals, including the two I just shared, what sometimes happens is they just kind of um, socially construct, you know, get socially constructed, if you will, kind of happen between the people the first time they have sex, you know, maybe this is how it happened. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes, because after all it worked, that becomes a regular ritual until it doesn't work anymore. Um, Right. So, and that so let becomes me ask, complicated because something mm-hmm. that you, that someone might find sexy or erotic one night, you know, the same two people the next day, one makes the same ask and then they're turned off by it because we change, and you know, it could be hormones, could be our mood, could be any could be what we ate for breakfast. But the point is, we think it's really important to collect and then to put out there because it's not out there how real people in intimate settings actually make those requests and responses so that people, wherever they are in their personal journey and development, their, their comfort level, whatever, that they have a big toolbox full of possible ways to do that in, in ways that are also very clear that this is a request and this is a response. And that is why we feel we're onto something because um, when we first started and we thought we were studying hookup culture because four years ago that's what was in the news and a lot of mm-hmm. buzz about it and it became very obvious in the first round that we were really studying consent mm-hmm. and so that's how far we've gone I, and uh, I imagine we'll dabble into it a little bit later in the show but it happens that we recently inter- re-interviewed these first year students who are now fourth year students and those have been really stunning to see their development and poignant, you know, yeah. and becoming gooey with age, I guess, too. So, you know, it was very charming and lovely to see them grown up and, and also that, you know, com- complicated things have happened during their college experience and they shared them. So we're very excited that we're able to, to in an honorable way and respectful way, collect those stories and to, um, with these students, you know, uh, agreement, um, put them out there for, for others to benefit. So what what came to mind when I was thinking about this is that, of course, the other side of consent is dissent. That is, so I'd, I'd be tempted to wonder, and it could go both ways, but I keep thinking about, we hear people writing about the dominant male culture norm and how that 
really underlies some of the exploitation of the female students. So I wonder how and what is the communication or is the position of the person who makes the request, and I love your last example, was a nonverbal, and I love that you're also saying what works one time is not etched in stone and may not work another, and then do you leave someone who's 19 thinking, whoa, this worked last time, it doesn't work this time. And where do we go with expectations that are disappointed and how does, if it's the male, uh, how does he handle that? What does he tell himself about that? Does he write it off as she's a bitch, she's a this or that? Does he, does he have patience? So I wondered, did you have men who shared stories where it was hard for them because they never, they never were able to move on this or they really fizzled or really became inflamed uh, with, with a dissent? Erica? I don't... Okay, so the men we interviewed... So remember, this is a self-selected group in the, in the sense that they all voluntarily participated in this study. And so um, the men who came to speak to us um, tended to be men who also reflected a um, compassionate understanding of you know, of relationship and people who, who tended to want to be in um, committed monogamous relationships and were looking for that. And so I think that mm-hmm. the disappointment was not so much around or at least expressed, right, that it wasn't around um, being, you know, quote unquote, rejected from sex, but it was around not being able to um, to secure a steady relationship. That, that seemed to be more of the disappointment than somebody telling them no about sex. And so we just, um, in our interviews, when we would ask about that, they would often say, well, you know, if they don't want to have sex, they, that's, that's fine. Right? That's, right. that's okay with me. Um, you know, and, not, and nothing really more than that. So this is where, I guess, Jason, I know you've done research and work on masculinity and definitions of masculinity. So somewhere maybe in future research, you know, dovetailing with that is, Erica, you're saying that, you know, most of these folks were looking for relationships and the disappointment was something not unfolding into that. Not so much, I want to score on Saturday night and I'll do it anyway. I have to, maybe because I want to or maybe because I got to tell the guys in the fraternity that I did. So there's those other dynamics of young people who are right on the same campus as are men and women who are sharing with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, speaking to your point that, of course, because people are diverse and there's a lot of us, you know, on Earth, there's then clearly we know that there are instances like what you describe, and I'm not, and you know, I don't want to either elevate that as a dominant or mm-hmm. or dismiss it as something that right. doesn't happen enough, you know, or or a certain amount of times or whatever. Uh, it's su- suffice it to say that those those encounters and and the resentments that you you know you were describing and asking about, of course, they occur, and then. If we were going to do a study of those specific instances where, let's say, theoretically, we recruited a group mm. of males who um, tended to be ones who would resent a rejection, 
um, and would make decisions either to push it or to be mad or to say nasty things or whatever, um, then you start to unpack those questions of the masculine scripts and scripts about right. sexuality, which, of course, Erica has a great deal of expertise on because she, she's done a lot of work on, in her research about our early learning, and I'll, you know, I'll defer to her to, to speak about that. Okay, um, I'm going to just have to stop you for a minute, and we can come right back to this. But And I, and I appreciate that, that you're right. It would be a different line of questioning. <laughs> Let's take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with doctors Jason Laker and Erica Boaz, and we're really looking closer at the insider story that became the verbalized consent story and made a very big difference in the participants of this qualitative research with both of these researches. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We've been talking with Drs. Erica Boaz and Jason Laker about reducing campus sexual violence by really fostering young people's sense of agency. That is their ability to give and get consent. Um, before we even, we, we want to really talk about how this 
and we just saw a glimpse. We, we literally heard a glimpse of these wonderful um, the aspects of this research. But before we even unfold it into what you're going to be doing with it, how would people find you? How would teachers, college staff members, um, administrators, students themselves, how would they find both of you and this whole idea of consent stories? Um, well, we, well oh, go ahead. The answer is pretty simple. It's the way anybody gets found these days. Um, <laughs> we can be found online at consentstories, all one word, dot org or dot com. So either of those will lead you to us, and um, you'll see, you know, some of what we've been, what we do, um, the our theory of action, um, and also some of the publications that we um, have been in, and our future work as well. Terrific. Great. So let's talk about, I mean, those freshmen had quite an experience. You you were sort of even emotional describing the kind of development. We know lots of things happen, but I have a hunch that their involvement with this project made a difference. Do you picture really um, unfolding this qualitative type of research into interventions for students coming in to a campus or on a campus? Have you done training with this? What are next steps for your research? We have done trainings. Um, we do workshops and presentations all over the country. We've done them, you know, in many many parts of the country. Um, we are, you know, this this next week going to be in Montreal presenting on our on our work. So we do have a lot of workshops, but we also um, work with universities on um, really developing a language to talk about consent. And so we're really interested in, in working with college and university campuses um, you know, at the different levels. So students, um, student affairs people, professors, um, anybody who comes into contact with any other person we are interested in, in working with. And um, one of the models that we are right now developing is a peer education model where we, where we take seriously, we consider seriously um, Students' lived experiences. So we, we you know, use the word roll into. So we roll into these workshops um, some of our consent stories, and we use them as learning tools for other students. Um, and so I think what that does is really honor, honor people's experiences with sex that are not, you know, whether they're, they're joyful, um, whether they're difficult, whether they are truly painful, whether they're, you know, ambivalent. Um, we honor we honor the range, right? When when we talk about se- uh, consent, sexual consent, and um, you know people's decision making processes around that, we don't. We are not going for a top down approach, which is generally what students get, right? Okay. People telling them um, legalistically, this is what consent is, and this is what what it's not. Because you began this, um, or you you've spoken to us about when is yes a yes and when is no a no, but a lot of times a yes is not a true yes. A yes is spoken, but it's not really felt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, so we want to be able to confront um, what seems like an impossibility, right? But it's, it's really not. It's about moving away from a shame approach to talking about sex to, to an honest approach to talking about sex and one that, um, that actually asks people to reach back into their early learning, to mm-hmm. understand where they're at now. 
Nice. So, in other words, the idea would be as you roll it out, or the expression, whatever you used, for peers, the idea is that they could pass it forward and maybe offer safe places to talk about consent and what it really means and personal experiences with consent and dissent um, with, with other students, student to student. Yes, we would, yes. Mm-hmm. Great. That's great. That's a wonderful model. How have people responded to the trainings? Do you think that people are eager to... See, once you get the students involved, they own it, and it's not just a rule book somewhere. Hmm. Yes. And people have been incredibly responsive uh, and, and positive, and, and students certainly, because, you know, to, to Erica's point, they they rarely get talked with or talk, you know, in a way that shows and demonstrates a respect for their, uh, their personhood fully. Um, and so that, that can be very engaging. But when we do presentations and trainings, you know, with organizations, with, with, you know, college educators, not just the students, we do that too, but even, um, title nine coordinators or, or student affairs staff or you name it. Um, one of the things that's just so striking is but you can when you're when you have the opportunity to, to give a presentation about something like that to a group, and of course you're at the front, so you see all their faces. They mm-hmm. don't necessarily see each other. Right. It's very beautiful how mm. it's so when you're in the presence of truth, you know. Yeah. And so when we give our presentation and share these stories, especially because people are living these stories and not sharing them or not having right. opportunities to share them, it's very stunning to see the looks on people's faces. And not, again, not just college students. We have had deans of students, people you know, in their 60s, people in their 30s, people in their 50s, whatever, um, respond to the just fundamental honesty and truth about it. And um, it affects, it's very affirming to people in general. So as Erica pointed out at the very beginning of the show today, we are focusing on college students for this part of the project, but we believe that this is a an, you know, fundamentally human issue and the constraints are shale, are felt by everybody in some way. And so people are very positive and, and oftentimes they want us to come back or, or schedule things uh, to, you know, to stay in touch. And we're, we're very eager to do that because, you know, we're on a mission. Um, right. And uh, so it's been, it just really, the, any critiques, they, you know, they tend to be more, well, had you thought about doing it this or that or the other, but fundamentally to a person has been very positive. And when people have pointed out things, for example, we, we will in the future do, a, you know, do study couples because obviously by, right. by definition, we only talk to one person at a time. And so that's their experience. It'd be interesting to find out whether the other person who is in the room also saw it that way and so forth. So we have other plans ahead. Um, as I said earlier, we're currently interviewing, re-interviewing the freshmen who are now fourth year, and that's been uh-huh. huge, huge. And then we're also going to um, be doing a they, You asked earlier, we didn't answer before, that these the first pilot study, they were all um, 
identified as male or female and were heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was intentional in this, it, only because for the first study, it's like exploring an island. We were looking first at the dominant scripts. So the dominant okay. scripts privilege a binary gender and heterosexuality, but, and, and gay people and trans people and so forth are also subjected to that. So we wanted to first get our heads wrapped around that, but we're actually NIST about to begin a study focusing on gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer uh, people and, you know, gender fluid and, and so forth to see how particularly, you know, if there's similarities or differences. And we believe that those populations will have things to share that will be of benefit to heterosexual. For example, people who, who have gender or sexual identities that are stigmatized in society yes. are subjected to different kinds of pressures and have to come up with very clever ways to flirt or whatever that allows deniability. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that if you make an overture, the other one say, you know, what are you doing or something? And they need to right. be able to say, oh, no, I just meant whatever. Mm. So we believe that even though it was for bad reasons, that is, you know, oppression, discrimination, that they nonetheless developed really rich ways of navigating this that would be of great benefit to learn even for heterosexual. And it should also be mentioned briefly that all of the students, we had, we had multi, they were multiracial. We have an embarrassment of riches in California. We're able to recruit people from different races. And also um, they had different sexual experiences. So we had virgins waiting till marriage, virgins waiting for a willing partner, monogamous people and people who were hooking up. So we, we had that range as well. Well, the whole idea of a gift of safe space to share something people don't give each other permission to talk about, because people will have sex rather than talk about it, right across the board and the age ranges, is really a wonderful piece of what you're doing. It's safety, it's healing, it's learning, but mostly it's giving people that sense of agency, which is, I have a say in this very important and intimate part of my life. So I, I can't thank you both enough for coming. I, I wish you the best on this research. We'll welcome you back to hear what's happened as you've expanded. Dr. Jason Laker and Dr. Erica Boas, thanks so much for coming on Psych Up Live. Thank Thank you you so so much, much. Suzanne. You're very welcome. I want to thank my listeners, and I want to remind you that the show today and all the shows become a podcast. This will be a podcast by this evening. It can be heard on iPhones, iTunes, Sketcher. It'll, of course, be at the same link on my host page. We're going to continue with our our goal of preventing camp campus sexual violence next week we'll be hearing from some action programs and that is the green dot project will be coming on with jesse lyons the associate director and we'll be hearing about a special app the circle of six which is a way of taking a virtual group with you on campus to keep yourself safe and to step up if someone needs you please feel free to contact me um, at radiohostphillips.com. Remember, until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 